Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 441 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Michaela Morgan speaks with Anne Morgan about becoming a book lover by accident, writing for reluctant readers, using stories to unlock people and the importance of not writing down to children. Michaela Morgan is a prolific author of fiction, non-fiction and poetry, mostly for children. With her subject matter encompassing everything from Victorian match sellers to Malala Yousafzai, and experience running workshops and settings as varied as schools and prisons, she is skilled at making complex ideas accessible and relatable to all kinds of readers. She started off by telling me where writing began for her. It's difficult to know when things start, isn't it? They, I mean, writing is one of those things that creeps up on you, really. Uh, I suppose as a child, I did like reading a lot and I did like playing with language but often it was spoken language making things up making up jokes and rhymes and and telling tall tales and stories um when I actually started writing it's probably sort of teenage years, you know, with those inevitable journals and diaries one keeps as an adolescent, you know so yeah, I think I was always short of a sort of confidant, I think. So I used to have um, an exercise book or a journal and I would use that to sound out my ideas or to complain about things or to celebrate funny things that had happened. So I I suppose it all started with keeping a diary or a series of diaries and journals and just playing around and little by little, it turned into writing. Um, it was almost organic, really. Um, so I can't really say how it happened, when it happened, or why it happened. So it's always been with you, Always really. been with me. And it's actually very unlikely that it was with me because I don't come from a bookie family at all. I come from quite a large family um, and not one person in the household was a reader apart from me so i'm a freak of nature really i i didn't come from one of those families that where people read you a bedtime story or anything like that i never saw anybody reading a book you know my mother referred to books and when she did say there was a book she meant a magazine you know the woman's realm or woman's world or something that was a book but there were no actual books in my house until we got <laughs> and I think it must have been a bargain we got Arthur Mee's children's encyclopedia volumes one to ten and I um, I really owe Arthur Mee whoever he might be such a lot of gratitude because he had everything in there myths and legends little stories to learn french with bits of information and i loved those books really i can still see some of the pages in my mind now and i became a reader you know by accident and carried on with it by getting stuff from libraries really 
So I would go to Longsight Library by myself, crossing a main road, different times in those days. Nowadays, I don't think children go to libraries by themselves, especially not when they cross a major road. And, and I just kind of read my way through the um, children's section, really. And uh, I, I read the books at school, even when I was, in fact, supposed to be doing other things. So maths is still a mystery to me because I was reading Alice in Wonderland. I became an absolutely, well, I'm not going to go obsessive, but fervent. I was a fervent reader and I was the only fervent reader I knew. So I was a bit of a weirdo, really. Yeah. But who, who was your first reader then? Who, who did you first trust to, to look at your work? I don't really trust people to look at my work. I mean, some people, mm. they write something and they immediately want to send it to people to ha- for them to have a look at and to get their opinions and their feedback. And their, um, I, don't, I don't like that. So I write mm. something and the first time somebody reads it is when I send it to a publisher. Was that true right at the beginning? Um, so your first reader was a potential publisher? I've done a lot of books for children which were highly illustrated. Mm. So um, they would have been seen by the illustrator. The illustrator will have seen them all because I, I was the sort of person that worked sort of hand in glove with the illustrator. We weren't mm. separated. But otherwise, I didn't encourage feedback. <laughs> I, I, di- I didn't like it, really. Um, mm. And I didn't like sharing my work with people I just um, would send it to a publisher and even then it was slightly reluctantly I wanted to get it published I don't know why but I did but in those days it was by post you put it in a brown envelope and stick it in a letterbox and I it was a big effort for me to walk out with that envelope and to put it into a letterbox you know it really was. And nobody will have seen it before then or even known I was doing it. I'm a secret mm. writer. <laughs> yes, it's a strange thing, writing, isn't it? Because I think for a lot of us, it does start as quite a secret mm. thing, you, something you do on your own. And no one, unlike many of the other arts, which are collaborative, mm. you don't have to work with anyone in order to write a story or a poem. And so it can be quite late in the day that you actually start to show your work. And that that can be a very strange exposing sort of process Uh, and sometimes especially I've done some picture books where they've got to be minimal text and maximum illustrations and um, Mm. sometimes they want edits after the the story is written Mm. and I find it very hard I really Mm. do because I've weighed every word you know I've chosen everything really carefully and they suddenly want to take something out and I can feel the rhythm going, you know, and the voice going and um, Mm. I'm I'm not not a happy person when I'm being edited, really. I'm a grumpy. (laughs) A reluctant editor. Yeah, yeah, very reluctant, yeah. Now, you say you've written a lot of titles for children. That's somewhat of an understatement because you, you have, well, in the region of 200 titles, yes. fiction, non-fiction and poetry to to your name, which is a, an extraordinary number of, of books. How do you manage to be so prolific? What's your what's your process like? Every day I work, you know, I'm not one. Of, I'm not a person that has to sort of wind myself up and uh, combat a lot of uh, reluctance and um, writer's block or anything I, I do something every day it's you know just like eating or sleep well I'm not very good at sleeping so that's not a very good example but it, it's 
it's something I have to do, really. Fortunately for me, the market for children's books is quite a hungry market. You know, they're always wanting new things, especially in the part of children's books that is devoted to education. That's a very hungry market. And once you get into the world of education, you start providing things to educational publishers, they will always be asking you for something else. And I will always say yes. <laughs> I'm just a girl that can't say no as they sing. And that's, is it Doris Day or somebody sings that? I think um, you're right. Yes, yeah. They Doris ask Day. me to do something and I immediately think, oh, I don't know if I can do that, you know. Mm. And then my mind gets chewing it over. And I start finding a way of doing it. And then I'm caught, aren't I? Then I've got to mm. do it. Mm. Now, one story that's captured your imagination, and you've in fact done two, I think two, if not more books about, is the Walter Tull story. Oh, yes. Now, Walter Tull, being in Folkestone, yes. he's something of a local hero mm. here because he was born here. Mm. And you started working on his story uh well, nearly 20 years ago I now, know. didn't you? Before he was as well known as he is now. He wasn't known um, at all. Yeah. He really wasn't known at all. Yeah. What What drew you to him? Can you tell us a bit about him and, and why his story attracted you? Yes. I did quite a bit of work for a publisher called Barrington Stoke. They publish books for people who don't really want books, right? Mm -hmm. So reluctant readers or children who um, might be dyslexic or, you know, and I, I love that audience. I love to make books for people who don't think they like books, you know. That's my that's my happy space. I like to do poems for people who think poetry is rubbish, and I like to get them to love it, you know. Um, so I I uh, I'm always I was very keen to do things for Barrington Stoke. I can imagine the the people reading the books. I'm I, I really know who I'm writing for when I'm writing. I I can feel them there really, and um, I wanted to get a story for the sort of it was typically a boy, although girl was also like the Walter Tarr story. But I was thinking of a, a typical boys that think books aren't interesting. And really all they want to do is kick a ball around the playground. <laughs> so I thought, let's do something about football, you know. And I, I, I kept a sort of ear out and eye out for stories about football. And then I was on a bus in Manchester and I picked up one of their free newspapers and it had a very, very small article. It was about three lines. And it said there was an exhibition in the Imperial War Museum, the Manchester Imperial War Museum. And it was an exhibition of sporting and war heroes. So sporting heroes who were also war heroes. So I went and had a look. And there I found a photograph of Walter Tull and a postcard that he'd written in his own handwriting, in pencil. And there wasn't a lot of information about him, but the photograph of him standing there, looking so proud and mm. almost defiant, you know? I thought, this is an interesting character. And I read the little bit that was already known about him, and it was very little. There was a book written for adults by somebody called Phil Vasili, and he wrote a good book about Walter Tull, but it was targeted at people who wanted lots of detail, were grown up and knew everything about history and football, whereas my audience were not going to be the same 
sort of reader at all. So I found out what I could and I discovered that he was of mixed race, that he was orphaned very early on, that he was separated from his family and sent to be brought up in a children's home with his brother. And then his brother was taken away and adopted and Walter was left alone. And Walter discovered his talent. I love it when somebody finds their talent, you know. And he was actually a good cricketer as well as a good footballer. But he was spotted, scouted and became a player in an amateur team. And then spotted again and became the first black British professional footballer. He played for Tottenham Hotspur, the Spurs. And he was doing really well. And this was over 100 years ago, 100 wasn't years it? ago, it's, and yeah. he's the first recorded example of race, racism, racial abuse on the pitch because mm. he did an away match where he suffered a lot of abuse and it, mm. it, it affected him. And he recovered and he became, you know, a, a, a great footballer, uh, but his career was brought short because in 1914, war broke out and he joined the army. And he became the first black British officer. And I thought, there's a boy who's gone through hell and mm. stayed strong. And he's become a, a professional footballer, star, and then a, an officer and fought at the Somme twice. I mm. mean, his story was almost impossible to believe. And it was incredible. But what was even more incredible was that nobody knew it. Mm. He was the unknown hero. And I thought, well, I'm going to tell his story. So I did years and years ago, and it's never been out of print. It's constantly reissued in a new format. I've done it in two different ways now, once as a story and once as a non-fiction book. Mm. I've done it like a scrapbook in the non-fiction way. So it's got his photos stuck in and real documents and the actual telegram that was sent to announce his death. And... Yeah, I'm really pleased with Walter Tull because it's loved by everybody that reads it, mostly because of him, because of his character, and it appeals to readers of all sorts. So, you know, really booky kids or, or read it because it's a nice quick read for them. Grown-ups read it because they, they're entranced by the story. Those who struggle with reading read it. Those who are really don't see themselves as readers read it. So it's very big in sort of units, you know, especially devoted to children who who are no longer at school for one reason or another or who don't read. And I get I get reviews from these kids saying, I don't read, but I've read this. Thank you. Hmm. You know? And it yeah. got voted in prison, in Perth prison, <laughs> in, in, in uh, Scotland. I read about it in the newspaper. They did a competition in Perth prison yeah. to find out which was the most popular book in the library in Perth prison. And it was Walter Toll by Michaela wow. Morgan. <laughs> How amazing. I know. Oh, I, I beat... Um, What's the person who did the Da Vinci Code? Dan Brown. Dan Brown I beat yeah. Jeffrey Archer. I was very pleased about that. <laughs> uh, you know, all sorts of um, marvellous, popular writers were, were reduced to second and third and fourth because oh, Walter Toll took their 
took pride of place. And I don't think it's partly the way I told it. I I, I did tell it well, but it's mostly the man's life himself. Mm. You know, he's, mm. he's a remarkable and wonderful person. Mm. But I think it is also your writing, actually, because something that is very striking in your work, both in that book and in other poems and, and stories you've written is your directness you don't shy away from very difficult issues even writing for children I mean obviously Walter Tell's life as you say had a number of very difficult things mm. in it uh, racism the the first world war battle of the Somme um, but you've also covered a whole range of quite difficult topics I mean everything from uh, the fossy jaw that match a Victorian match sellers oh, used to get yes. to US politics with Hillary Clinton yes. and, and Malala's attempted to assassination and you don't shy away from the hard truths about these things in fact you often say to your reader can you imagine what it would have been like put yourself there Mm. think about that 35,000 men killed you know Mm. how do you get that balance what makes you I mean a lot of people would shy away from being so kind of open with children about these difficult things what why do you think it's important not to do that? I don't know the absolute answer to that, but I don't think mm. as ch- of children as being that different to me, or I don't think of as myself as being that different to them. So I, I don't sort of write down for them, really. One of the poems I've done is called My First Day at School, and it's mm-hmm. about Ruby Bridges, who at the mm. age of six was the first little black girl to go to a non-segregated school in America and who on her walk to school had to walk through crowds of people shouting abuse and insults at her, right? Mm. And when she got to school, found that nobody else had stayed in the school, so she was the only pupil in her class. But I find children inspirational, actually. Uh, Ruby is inspirational because... because of what she did in her life. But also when I read that poem in schools, I'm inspired by the children because often they start off, if, you, if you're starting with older children, they're often slumped somewhat, <laughs> you know, <laughs> their legs are all over the place and they've got their arms folded and they've got that look that says, go on then, impress <laughs> me, you know. And um, sometimes I'm tempted to go comedic for them because I've got some funny light-hearted all join-in sort of poems and I enjoy them but sometimes I look at them and I think I'll try Walter Tull's story or Ruby Bridges story and that happened recently in London I had a fairly disengaged bunch of kids and I started off with that my first day at school poem mm. Quite a brave decision on my part, I have to say, mm. because it's it's easier to go for the laugh, really. Mm. But to see them get caught up by the story, their faces tilting, their shoulders going back, their posture changing, and them focusing completely on the life of this ch- child and them understanding something. You know, mm. I just feel really privileged to be able to do that, really. And I think... I identify very strongly with my audience. So that's how I get across to them. I think that's how it is, really. Mm. I mean, that what you say about being inspired by children is really interesting because you, the dedication to the poetry collection that you did with Liz Brownlee and Jan Dean, they both dedicate it to people, but you dedicate it to the stars as yet unseen shine on. <laughs> and there's a real sense of 
that you're you're really open to other people's potential yes um, as you said you love when people discover their talent when Walter Toll discovered his talent and I think that's really clear that comes across really clearly in your work and another thing that I really enjoy about your work is is how much you you enjoy playing with stereotypes and subverting <laughs> expectations I mean in that collection there are several poems that you've written that actually take long-established nursery rhymes and things and turn them on their head. Um, Sugar and Spice, for example, oh, and yes. um, Girls of the Week, where you take that, that Monday's Child mm. uh, poem and, and rewrite it with girls in mind and actually sort of twist the ending about. Um, what is it about that that you, that you enjoy? About twisting well-known... Uh, yeah, subverting, subverting those stereotypes and playing yeah. with, you know, accepted ideas, I suppose, or things that maybe we, maybe we don't even question because they're just so much part of the furniture. Mm. I think it's uh, my early childhood. As I say, it wasn't it wasn't a book rich uh, environment, it, but it was a lot of word play and uh, mm. making fun of things and making jokes and making up stories. I think there's a bit of that in it. And you're quite right. The dedication for uh, reaching the stars, I do say, I, I dedicate it really to the people reading the book. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because yeah. I because I'm very aware of the the person reading the book and what a difference a poem or a story uh, or something to imagine can make to the person reading the book because that's what happened to me mm. somehow I found a book I really don't know how and it made all the difference so I know that writing reading books poetry stories are keys to unlock people I'm aware of that and I use any means to unlock and one means is to go for what they already know and to sort of use that as the basis to build on. Mm. So um, with the nursery rhymes for instance, I did work for a long time in prisons and um, people, especially grown up people, and these were men, grown up men, not young, you know, they were, they were lifers, so they, you know, they'd had a life. It's quite a lot to ask somebody to write, you know. But if you mm. give them something as a springboard to start off from, they can write about it. So I used to use nursery rhymes with prisoners. So uh, I got uh, what did I? I got Humpty Dumpty from one of them. It was it goes like this: Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. He fell off and cracked up after all. All the psychiatrists, psychologists too, sectioned him off under the Mental Health Act subsection two do you know it's great isn't it mm, and there's another one about um uh, which somebody started off doing a, a nursery rhyme and ended up writing about what it was like to be homeless so um, i'm using things really as like springboards to give people a start really yes mm. yeah and you also write it quite a lot about traditional feminine stereotypes and and again tackle those a lot about the fashion oh, yeah. of, of previous periods um stays and corsets mm. and you do that in a really powerful way I mean something again that I think is uh, a real strength in your writing is how you make those quite distant periods and experiences very present for your reader what is it about about writing about history that that you enjoy I I, I find history is a bit big really it's a bit big for us all to understand so the first world war for instance it's impossible for anyone to understand it really it's too mm. huge the numbers that died are too enormous so i like to hone in on one person's story really or one person's experience so that's what the walter toll story did it, it dealt with you know 
human dilemmas and war, but one person's experience of it. And the same with those poems in Reaching the Stars. I nearly always go for one person's experience. So I don't write about segregation. I write about Ruby Bridges, you know. I suppose it comes naturally to me to make um, a story personal rather yeah. than big. Yeah. So those details are something that you can clutch onto and, and build something around and, and feel quite present. Really. Yeah. 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 Very powerful. And what advice would you give to someone who might want to write for children? Are there any tips or tricks of the trade that you would share? Yeah, well, first of all, I would say don't think it's the easy option because people do they think uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do I've got 20 minutes free <laughs> I'll write a children's book you know they're and, very short yeah, yeah. <laughs> and because there's so many celebrity children's books around by people who, who aren't mm. devoted writers it looks as if anybody can do one although most of those are ghost written I have to tell mm. you because I've done some of them myself <laughs> <laughs> I am some famous people <laughs> but I, I, I'm, I'm, I can't say who um, but I, I, I think we should never sort of imagine that children's that work for children is less important than work for taller people children are an important audience and a valued audience and not an audience to be talked down to or taken lightly really and to write a good children's book i think is really something because it can live for a long long time um, absolutely we uh, we know that we at the royal literary fund fellowship are partly financed by winnie the pooh <laughs> yes indeed <laughs> who's still popular all these years later you know peter pan uh, subsidizes the great ormond street hospital you know mm-hmm. so um a, a good children's book will tap into kind of universal and eternal things really it won't be limited by time and age or geography or fashion it will carry on so if you want to write a children's book don't belittle your audience or patronize your audience or think they're not important because they're small or think that children's books are somehow much easier than anything else respect children respect your own writing respect children's books and put in them as near as you can get to the truth. That was Michaela Morgan in conversation with Anne Morgan. You can find out more about Michaela on her website, michaelamorgan.com. And that concludes episode 441, which was recorded and produced by Anne Morgan. Coming up in episode 442, Alan Jenkins speaks with John Greening about winning the Forward Prize the moment he knew he would spend his life writing poetry, and the role of loss and death in his work. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.